This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Hmm, hold on. Didn't I say that already in the pre-recorded introduction? Perhaps I should say something else, like, Hello folks, how are you? How's life? How are you getting on today? Thank you for tuning in to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, and in particular, the third in a three-part series on Buddhist modernism and Buddhist postmodernism. We'll be looking quite a bit at the second half today, but we won't be skipping the first as we speak to today's guest, Anne Gleig. Anne Gleig is Associate Professor of Religion and Cultural Studies at the University of Central Florida. But she's not an American, folks. No, she's a fellow Brit. In fact, she's a Scouser. Have you heard that word before? I bet most of you haven't. A scouser is somebody from Liverpool or the Liverpool area. I do believe it's interchangeable with Liverpudlian. Another rather nice word. Wouldn't you like to be a Liverpudlian? The Beatles were obviously from Liverpool. You could be too. And if you did, you'd probably have a scouse accent. Now our guest Anne has a bit of a scouse accent and it's rather nice. In fact, she has a very pleasant voice. But that's not really important now, is it? What's important is her book. And most of our conversation revolves around that text and the content within it. I recommend buying the book. Really, you should go out and get yourself a copy. It's called American Dharma, Buddhism Beyond Modernity, and it's printed by Yale University. And it's just come out. If you're listening to this fresh off the press, it came out in February 2019, which is a week or two ago, right? It's also highly affordable. In fact, one of the first questions I give to Anne is about that affordability, which of course is essential for those of us who don't work at universities and can't afford to spend a hundred plus dollars or euros or pounds on a book. It's just too much. This one won't set you back that much. It's also a fascinating book because it's possibly, in fact I'd say it most likely is, the most contemporary book on the Buddhist landscape in the West that you're going to find. I'm in it for goodness sake as are some of the guests we speak about and have spoken to on the podcast. Glenn's in it, Hokai's in it, Daniel Ingram's in it, the list goes on and on. It really does survey much of the contemporary American Buddhist landscape, but obviously if Hokai and I are in there too, it hasn't left out Europe entirely. Now I think it's worth mentioning the names of some of the chapters because they'll give you an idea of just how contemporary the text is. And we didn't really get into that in great detail in the interview. I'm going to tell you the names of some of the chapters because in themselves they're interesting and I think they probably whet your appetite for a greater read. The introduction is followed by a chapter that 
summarizes to some degree the situation of Buddhist modernism looking from Asia to America. It refers back to our last guest, David L. McMahon, and his work, obviously. And certainly the beginning of Anne's book is indebted to some degree to McMahon's great, great text. It moves on, though, swiftly to what's taking place now, as I mentioned. It looks at the movement from the mindfulness revolution to the mindfulness wars. Great title for a chapter, right? Chapter 3 looks at sex, scandal and the shadow of the Roshi. We talk about that quite a bit, actually. Chapter 4 looks at meditation and awakening in the American Vipassana network. 5 goes on to the dukkha of racism, racial diversity, inclusion and justice work. Well, there's a complex, rich topic. Some of you are going to be happy to listen to that. Some of you won't. We do touch on it in important ways in our conversation. Next, it moves on to Buddhism Unbundled. Hello, Mr. Vince Horn. Yes, it's mainly about you. From Buddhist Geeks to Meditate IO. Number seven looks at the movement from the boomers to Generation X. Well, it's about time. I can say that as a Generation Xer myself. And then chapter eight. Well, that's where I pop up. I'm in the damn book too. Can you believe it? Yes. Well, I guess I have to promote it then, don't I? In some sort of egotistical, narcissistic act. It looks at critical, collective and contextual turns in the contemporary Buddhist landscape. And the sort of stuff, really, that we've been doing on the podcast, that Glenn's been doing, and other critical voices as well. And finally, the conclusion, which is well worth your read, looks at American Buddhism in a post-age. Wow, sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So go out and buy a copy. That's it. That's the sound of Anne slipping me a fiver for promoting her text. A fiver means five pounds, in case you don't know. It's a symbolic gesture. It's a token act. Enjoy this podcast as it concludes this season on Buddhist modernity and postmodernity. Know that really the rest of the conversations we're going to be having this year with academics will continue to touch on exactly those two themes. That's the big deal, isn't it, really, this year? We're looking at the tensions and conflicts and creative occurrences that take place as Buddhism settles more deeply into the West, finds itself more fully in relationship with Western history and the Western context and the sorts of knowledge that we've developed in Western societies by thinking about a whole array of topics, many of which have not been thought about so deeply in countries where Buddhism was originally founded and developed. That has to lead to tension, right? It has to lead to change. And part of the conversation that Anne and I have really is an encouragement, I think. I think we're on the same wavelength with this for Buddhists in the West to engage more clearly with the tensions as they emerge, especially in these vibrant times of cultural conflict and multiple, multiple modernities manifesting. Finally, if you hear me huffing and puffing a bit and my voice sounds weak, well, some of you will be aware that I was quite seriously ill for a moment. When speaking to David, my voice was weak too. And although I'm getting stronger day by day, and it's highly likely I will be fully healed of the medical drama I went through in a month or two, the condition does leave me being out of breath and rather weak. I don't think this gets in the way of the conversation, but just be aware I'm doing my best. And if I sound a bit off, well, it's because I am at present. It's just the way it is. 
I need patience. Two months of being housebound is certainly pretty challenging, but I'm trying to make the most of it. And it's given me the time to dedicate a bit more energy to these podcasts, even if they are a little bit tiring. If you're one of those people that sent good messages through Facebook or Twitter, it's appreciated. And do know that I'm on the mend. Enjoy the podcast for now. We'll catch you next time on the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Welcome and like to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. And today we're going to be talking quite a bit about your brand new book, American Dharma, Buddhism Beyond Modernity. Now, you've written a fantastic book, Anne. It was published by Yale and it came out this February. And also, it's worth mentioning this, the book is highly affordable. So tell us a little bit about it. Let's, let's start off with the title and whether you chose it or not. How long did it take you to complete it? And how satisfied are you with the result? So the title, um, American Dharma, was actually Yale's choice. Um, I actually wanted to call it Enlightenment Beyond the Enlightenment, which is a, you know, a sentence that I think appears in the introduction and the conclusion. But basically, they wanted a more kind of snazzy title. They made a couple of suggestions, um, and I didn't like the suggestions they made. So I basically, I basically did a kind of poll on Facebook. You know, I asked kind of my friends on Facebook, you know, for some kind of suggestions, um, and that was a, it was kind of really interesting. It turned into this really kind of fantastic thread. There were about two hundred comments, and you know, obviously, I've got a lot of friends who are Buddhist scholars. I've got a lot of friends who are Buddhists. I've got friends who aren't Buddhist scholars or practitioners, and nearly everyone. It just seemed like everyone was kind of chipping in. And then I basically took, I think, about four or five suggestions and wrote to Yale and said, you know, which one do you like? And they settled on American Dharma and I got my subtitle. So the subtitle is Buddhism Beyond Modernity. So that, you know, kind of did the theoretical work that I wanted it to. I think, you know, the title's kind of grown on me. I think it's a, you know, kind of short, kind of snappy title. I'll say, you know, my one concern with it is that because the book only treats what I call meditation-based kind of convert lineages with convert and kind of quotation marks because it's a problematic category, you know, because it because I only treat, you know, that lineage and because the book's called American Dharma, you know, there is a kind of conflation of American with just that lineage. And that's, you know, something that's been really problematic um, in kind of the history of contemporary Buddhism in America. And then the book addresses, you know, kind of addresses that. So, so yeah, I was a little worried that the title kind of performs what I'm kind of critiquing mm. um, in the book. But I think I'm an academic and I don't really, you know, I'm kind of clueless around sales and kind of publicity. And, um, you know, Yale, you know, has, you know, obviously understands that much more. So I think it's a kind of compromise between a kind of commercial enterprise and a kind of academic one. And then I also wanted to, you know, mention the price, you know, it is, I think, incredible. It's $35 for the hardback, which is very unusual. But I think that the reason, you know, I wanted to go with the press, you know, we are limited. I mean, we, you know, it's not like we can choose who we publish with. It's like who offers a, you know, who will offer us a contract. But it was really important for me to go with a publisher that would make the book accessible, mm-hmm. you know, and affordable. And I think it, it's a kind of compromise with having a more kind of snazzy title, right? The snazzy title enables Yale to sell more copies, which enables the book to be cheaper. 
So I think, you know, I'm glad that you asked me that question, because I think it is important to think about, you know, the material conditions that academics work under, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's easy to be, you know, snobby as an academic. Like, I don't want that, you know, commercial title, but I'd rather have a title that spoke to a wider audience that could, you know, and and a book at $35 than a theoretically sophisticated title and the book cost $120, which a lot of, you know, books do. So, so yeah, um, so that's uh, the second part of the question was how long did it take? I think it took three years to write mm. and then it was in press for a year. But the thesis of the book, which is, you know, essentially the developments in contemporary Buddhism uh, can't be contained within a modernist uh, framework. You know, that's a thesis that I've been working on for a decade mm. Um, I've published on the same thesis in Hinduism. So I've got an editor collection called Homegrown Gurus uh, with Lola Williams. Oh, wow. Came out in two th- yeah, that came out in 2013. And, you know, the title of that book is from, the subtitle is from Hinduism in America to American Hinduism. And our original subtitle was from from modern Hinduism to postmodern Hinduism. And, and Sunni, we published that with Sunni. They didn't like that, so we had to change it. But it's a, it's essentially, you know, a kind of similar thesis, but looking at kind of Hindu kind of gurus. And then I published a couple of pieces on the East Bay Meditation Center mm-hmm. and also in, on Buddhist Geeks, where I, you know, basically advanced the same thesis. And that was, they were about, I think, 2.13 and 2.40. And so, yeah, so it's, the book is, you know, a culmination, I'd say, of a decade kind of long project. There was actually one more piece to that question, which I think is really <laughs> important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I do have a terrible habit of overloading questions sometimes, but uh, how satisfied are you with the result? I don't think any academic would ever say, oh, I'm fully satisfied with this work. Yeah, right. um, you know, I think works are always kind of in progress. I'm kind of satisfied. You know, I think it's a springboard for future research. I think that, you know, especially towards the end of the book, I was kind of writing it with the tenure clock kind of ticking, you know, and so towards the end, it was just really like, I just need to get this finished, you know, for my tenure file. And then having, you know, had a year away from it, you know, now I'm like, oh, I wish I'd just, you know, worked a little bit more on this chapter. You know, but overall, I think, you know, there's a couple of things that I wish that I'd included. You know, there's, I interviewed so many people um, and I didn't get everyone's voice, you know, in the book and I'd like to have included more voices more explicitly. Like everyone's in there implicitly that I interviewed, but I couldn't name people explicitly. So I wish, yeah, I would have liked more of that. Um, I would chapter that treated secular Buddhism kind of separately. The secular Buddhist stuff is in the penultimate part, uh, chapter. And I think that structurally, you know, that's a kind of an awkward part of the book. But, you know, honestly, I'd kind of gone over my word limit. The book is 120,000 words and I was contracted for 100,000. So basically had to kind of make do with what what I had. But again, I I just I think it might be interesting to, you know, the non-academic readers. I mean, even to me as an academic, I learned a lot about the book process that I wasn't aware of. And there are ways in which, you know, we are, I think, constricted that we don't realize until we're writing the book, you know, right. material limits. And actually, yeah, you know, it made me think, you know, I'm going to be so much more generous when I review, you know, colleagues' books after <laughs> this process of writing my own book. <laughs> so, yeah, but overall, I think mostly satisfied. Yeah, I think that desire to not miss things out never goes away when you're writing, right? 
we want to do justice to all the things that need to be said, but we never can, of course, right? Even in 120,000 words. It's just impossible. And I, I, don't, I mean, I guess it's also related to the costs of producing a book yeah. or pages that cost the publisher more money. So yeah, you do have to make kind of selective decisions. So, but yeah, no, I think it's a, I think it's going to make a contribution to Buddhist studies. You know, that I wanted to push the conversation further around, you know, Buddhist modernism. Um, that's the main, I'd say, theoretical contribution. And I also wanted to write a book that would be accessible uh, to undergraduate students. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm very invested in teaching. So I often think about my undergraduates when I'm writing. Um, and I also wanted to write for, you know, practitioners, Buddhist practitioners. And so as I'm reading it, you know, I think it does speak to those three audiences, to my peers, my colleagues, to my undergrads and to Buddhist practitioners. Um, but I also need to get feedback. You know, I'm looking forward to feedback from those three different groups um, on whether I was as successful as I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what do you think? Do you think the book is accessible to Buddhist practitioners? Listeners should know that, you know, you sent me an advanced copy and I did read it. And yeah, absolutely. You know, we're going to talk about this in a moment. But when I was speaking to David McMahon, I mean, I said something to him about his famous The Makings of Buddhist Modernism. And one of the things I said was that it was an a text which was clearly academic and drew on technical terminology, but it was highly readable. And I found his subsequent works to be very similar. And as a Buddhist practitioner myself, to be highly accessible. And I would say that I think you've continued in that tradition. Your your text, at least from my perspective, it's as accessible as any of the more academic texts that I've read, which seem to have that desire sharing to provide a level of discourse which is stimulating enough to those three different types of audiences. I'm thinking also about Donald S. Lopez's texts as well. I found it highly readable and um, very interesting. I would also agree with the point you made about the secular Buddhism section of the book. I think it's true what you said. The positioning is slightly awkward and I picked up on that. Oh, and great. It was interesting to hear you state that as the author yourself. Yeah, I think, you know, also I kind of want to give a shout out to Franz Metcalf. So Franz Metcalf is a uh, senior scholar in Buddhism and he is uh, an editor for the Journal of Global uh, Buddhism. And I, I mentioned this in my acknowledgments, but he is, you know, in many ways responsible for the book because um, I'd written, you know, the Buddhist Geeks article where I kind of, you know, play with this postmodern thesis. And he was a reviewer of uh, that article. And he, you know, basically contacted me and said, you know, we just we kind of continued a conversation about the, you know, this, the shift of the postmodern. And he was like, you really need to write a whole book about this. And so at the time, I was actually working on Turner, my dissertation, which has a similar title, but is a different, a different project, you know, into a book. So I was like, oh, you know, do I really want to start a whole new book or do I want to stay with my dissertation? But I'm really glad that I went with the whole new book. Um, but he was also a reviewer for, you know, for American Dharma. And he, you know, he, he brought that to my attention. And I tried a few different things with it at the end. I tried to put it in the, con you know, I, I played with it in different parts and then it, I tried to put it in the conclusion and essentially it just didn't really work. It only would work as its own chapter. And at that point I was like, I've gone over by, you know, 20,000 words. I can't write a whole new chapter. And I just also, I just didn't have the stamina to like write a whole new chapter. So yeah, so I think it is clunky. It is a little clunky and I, Kind of, yeah, it's, I'd say, you know, I see that as the main kind of structural weakness of the book. Yeah, so I'm glad that you noticed it too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad that we had a chance to kind of 
talk about yeah, it. Yeah, although, you know, being here with you now, I, of course, have to say nice things, but I, I'm being sincere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's odd. It feels like, as well, reading this book, that history is catching up with the present. You described it as a 10-year project, but it's also obviously very contemporary and... It's weird. It's, it's weird to have a, to read a book that's so contemporary and at the same time is making an historical statement just by its very publication. Yeah, I think, you know, on one level, I've kind of been really kind of gratified to see the ways that, you know, things have been kind of unfolded in kind of contemporary, you know, American Buddhism, because I feel like you know, I feel like my my kind of the th- you know the two articles, Buddhist modernism and the East Bay Meditation Center, they're very different communities. You know, Buddhist geeks is you know really techy kind of social media millennials, and the East Bay Meditation Center is all you know racial justice work, diversity and inclusion. So on the surface, they're two really different communities, but. They both really, I think, exemplify, you know, different threads of the postmodern and the postcolonial. So it's been really interesting to see those kind of strands kind of start to become more mainstream. You know, it's like I feel like my earlier work, you know, on those two articles really anticipates what's kind of gathering momentum in real time, which has obviously been really fantastic for the book because it just provides more data for my thesis. Um, But also the other problem with that is, you know, writing in real time was really stressful because, like, for example, you know, Yale wanted, you know, original material, but they said, so, you know, the East Bay does appear in one of the chapters, but there's not a whole chapter on the East Bay. So nearly all the book work is, you know, all the book chapters is original new material that I did. But they said, oh, you could do one chapter. So I thought, I'll just do the Buddhist Geeks chapter. <laughs> but that, So I was like, I don't have to really worry about that chapter. I've already got the article. You know, I got permission off the journal to reproduce it. But then a few months before I was, you know, my, one of my first deadlines with Yale, I received an email from Vince Horn from Buddhist Geeks saying, Buddhist Geeks is closing down. You know, like, <laughs> we're ending Buddhist Geeks and we're starting meditate io and i was just like no you know could you just wait three like please wait three months because you know if i submit it it doesn't matter if you anyway so basically they you know i had to rewrite the whole chapter on buddhist geeks you know and that you know took you know probably a couple more months um and then the same thing happened with the racial justice chapter you know i finished the first draft of that chapter um and the teacher training program which i cover in that chapter between what at the time was going to be a joint enterprise between in IMS and Spirit Rock and then they had you know a, a complete breakdown so I had to rewrite that chapter so you know that was really also really stressful and I think you know combine those two chapters probably added about six or seven months onto the book and then you know other things have happened since the book is in press you know there's some you know links that don't work you know there's a lot on Sweeping Zen I, I think are you familiar with Sweeping yeah, Zen? Yeah to some degree yeah. Yeah, well, Sweeping Zen, you know, that was a massive resource for me. But now Sweeping Zen, about a couple of weeks ago, uh, Adam Tebe, who, you know, ran Sweeping Zen, has actually um, converted. He's become a uh, evangelical Christian. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, actually, in, a, in and of itself, it's a fascinating yeah. story. But he's completely, he's ended Sweeping Zen. He's just, like, taken it down. So, you know, there's a whole chapter with, you know, 30 footnotes that no longer, <laughs> <laughs> you know, no longer yeah, work. Yeah. Um so yeah, that's a problem with the contemporary. I mean, it's changing so much and it's hard to keep up with it. Probably this book will be, you know, there'll be big chunks of it that might be out of date, 
you know, in a couple of years. Uh, hopefully, you know, the underlying thesis will not be out of date. But, you know, that's just the nature of working on contemporary religion, I think. Yeah. No, I tend to find the, the introduction and the conclusion to be the most interesting part of most books. And, you know, as a non-academic, I think that um, in reading both the introduction and the conclusion of your text, the themes you pick up on, which we're going to talk about now, are, are certainly very, very relevant to today. And I think they provide rich material for thought. And thinking about not just Buddhism, of course, but spirituality more generally and the sorts of struggles we're having with modernity, postmodernity, and whatever comes next. So let's talk about the aims that run through your book. You've kind of given hints about what they might be already, but could you be more explicit about the aims that you, you started with, you ran with, and, um, and why they're important too? In the introduction, I'm, I'm just going to keep on referring back to the book because I, you know, yeah, want to keep yeah, the um, But in the introduction, you know, I say there's two main aims in the book. And the first aim is to basically identify and kind of unpack the recent developments within, you know, these meditation based kind of convert lineages in American Buddhism. And then the second aim is basically to situate and analyze these developments within the wider cultural shift from the modern to the postmodern. So you've got those two distinct aims, but, you know, obviously uh, connected. So in terms of the first aim, why is that important? I mean, essentially, it's important because a lot has changed in uh, American Buddhism since the first wave of scholarship um, on American Buddhism. So, you know, the first wave of scholarship happened around the turn of the uh, millennium, millennial, what do you say? Millennial, millennium, sorry. Um, so there was, you know, but millennium, sorry. Yeah, I always get those words confused. So basically, you know, you've got work by Charles Prebish, um, Richard Hughes Sager. It's really, in a way, the start of the subfield of American Buddhism. Um, and that all came out around 201, 202. Um, and then, you know, there's been actually very, very few kind of uh, scholastic work, uh, you know, since then. Um, I do want to just mention a few books because I, you know, I think it's important for me to kind of acknowledge my colleagues. So, you know, Jeff Wilson has written a couple of books. He wrote a book on uh, called Mourning the Unborn dead, which is on essentially on a ritual that has become kind of re reframed within Soto Zen Buddhism. So he, he gives like a case study of, you know, an American community. And he also wrote a book called um, Dharma Dixie or Dixie Dharma, which is on Buddhism in the South, you know, this kind of meditation based Buddhism in the South. So he'd written these two kind of ethnographically based work, uh, works, um, but there'd been very, very little since then, apart obviously from David's book, which treats, you know, these North American Buddhist lineages in relationship to Buddhist modernism. But there'd really been no really solid ethnographic work, you know, on these lineages. And there's been a lot of changes. So I think we just really needed, you know, to kind of update what was happening in these communities. Um, and because because I work ethnographically, you know, I was also noticing that, you know, in some shorter kind of critical commentary on these lineages, they were really selective, you know, they'd take like a couple of paragraphs out of a book, you know, of an interview. And I didn't really feel it reflected what was happening on the ground. So I really wanted to kind of offer some, you know, snapshots from what's happening, you know, in these communities. Um, and then when I was working on my book, uh, Scott uh, Mitchell and Natalie Cooley published their edited collection. It's called Buddhism Beyond Borders. And that's based in a conference that happened in Berkeley in 2010. And, you know, they, they say basically the same thing as me when they open their book. They say, you know, there's been no scholarship on these 
in this field for like a decade um, and we need to kind of catch up. Um, and then I also want to give a shout out to Jay Michelson, who's a kind of friend and a colleague of mine. He did write a book called Evolving Dharma, Meditation, Buddhism and the Next Gen. You know, that actually covers a lot of ground in my, that I cover in my book, but it's, a, it's more like a first person account. So it hasn't got the kind of ethnographic, you know, weight. But I think, you know, that might be of interest to uh, people. And then, of course, you know, Scott published his uh, survey of Buddhism in America a couple of years ago, which is also a much more comprehensive. It's a different genre of book than mine. It's a it's a survey of the whole field of American Buddhism. Essentially, sorry for that kind of laundry list, but I think it's really important to acknowledge, you know, Buddhist other work. Um, But yeah, so basically we needed work, you know, in these lineages and then. On the second point of, you know, the other aim is, you know, this theorizing spirituality, as you say, not just Buddhism, but, you know, this kind of spiritual, but not religious and this kind of Asian influenced kind of spirituality. Basically, you know, all the dominant paradigms and frameworks to understand this spirituality are modernist ones. You know, self-spirituality is a big theoretical framework in the sociology of, of spirituality. And I was basically saying, I mean, as I say, you know, I wrote a book, I did an editor collection on Hinduism in America, where I basically am making the same claims that I just don't think a modernist framework does justice to what's happening um, in these communities. And I'd say the same thing's happening in yoga. So I've been basically playing, you know, at this framework of the pre-modern, modern and post-modern and, you know, thinking about it in different ways um, across, actually across, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, and also, you know, kind of like more like kind of mystical, psychological, kind of psycho-spiritual traditions. I've done quite a bit of work in that area as well. Great. And I'm glad you mentioned these other authors, because I have a question I want to ask about that too, and the relationship between your work and theirs. I basically came up with this idea of putting three authors together who and you all know each other, as it turns out, which I actually didn't know previously. Yeah, but yeah. you're all touching on these themes of, of modernism and, and postmodernism and what comes next. I've suggested that you, Scott and David, are all wrestling with, with similar themes and topics to some degree that are all live today. Uh, would you generally agree with that? And, and how has the work you all do informed each other? And where, if at all, has it led to any different conclusions? Yeah, well, it's definitely true. You know, we are working on similar themes. Um, Let's see. So David, you know, I think he did classical Mahayana Zen early training and was in classical kind of Mahayana Buddhism. Um, And then he kind of, I think, made a few forays into kind of Buddhist, you know, new Buddhism. And then, of course, he wrote, you know, The Makings of Buddhist Modernism, which is a massively epic seminal text. And then his work since then has been, I think... Um, really grappling with, I think he, you know, he talks a lot about multiple modernities. He does mention, you know, the shift to the postmodern in the in the last chapter, which was really useful for me as a kind of springboard in my introduction. But he hasn't really gone in that direction. You know, he hasn't really worked on postmodern or postcolonial Buddhism. He's working a lot on uh, meditation and science. And I think as far as I know, he's mostly theorizing them within a kind of multiple modernities model everyone's indebted i'd say i just really want to give a shout out to david i felt like i didn't acknowledge him enough in my acknowledgements um in my introduction you know i cover different scholars who are working with modern buddhism you know you know protestant buddhism buddhist modernism you know they're all using different terms to point at similar phenomena across you know asia and the west but i think what was so 
you know, impactful about David's book was, first of all, he gives a much deeper theoretical exploration of the specific modernist discourses that have, you know, helped form Buddhist modernism. So, you know, he really, he really draws heavily on Charles Taylor and he looks at the Enlightenment lineage and the Romantic lineage and, you know, the kind of cultivation of the modern self. So he makes a massive theoretical contribution. But the other thing that he does that I think is super significant, certainly super significant for my work is is he's one of the first authors to, first scholars to, I would say, really take Buddhist modernism seriously. If you look at like Don, you know, Don Lopez's treatment of Buddhist modernism and there is a little bit of a dismissal, you know, that this is Protestant Buddhism. I think Don says, you know, Don Lopez says, you know, we need to leave, you know, the scientific Buddha is short and happy kind of life. You know, we need to kind of free up, leave, leave the scientific Buddha behind. And I'd say, you know, generally in Buddhist studies, it's such a, it's historically been such a conservative field that there's been a lot of, you know, kind of dismissal of modern forms of Buddhism. And I think David's book, you know, is a kind of shift. I want to say, I want to really make a distinction between taking Buddhist modernism seriously and critique of Buddhist modernism, because they're not the same. I mean, taking Buddhist modernism seriously is, you know, basically comprehending it as a, you know, new historically unprecedented form of Buddhism, but a legitimate form of Buddhist practice. And then you can make critiques of it. But I think before then, you know, it was just so dismissed, like no one took it seriously, like critique and taking it seriously were kind of collapsed together. So I'd say, you know, I just really, from for my work, just that move, having a senior scholar, I mean, another thing is just the way academic works, like it really helps as a young, you know, as a junior scholar to refer to someone else's work. So, you know, for me to say, oh, as David McMahon says in his seminal book, you know, that's doing some kind of lifting up of my scholarship, you know, that's just the way scholarship works, basically, it's just a power dynamics. Um, and then in terms of Scott, I think Scott's primary uh, research area is Shin Buddhism. So, you know, he's producing new data on Shin Buddhism. And then his work on Buddhist modernism, he takes on Buddhist modernism in Buddhism Beyond Borders. So Buddhism Beyond Borders, you know, which came out in 2015 with Natalie Cooley, you know, they have these papers from the conference in 2010, and they basically theorize the shifts that's been happening you know, in terms of, again, multiple modernities, and they offer different ways to look at modernity, uh, modernity as, as a narrative and, and modernity as a historic period. So they really nuance and complicate the idea of modernity, which I think is, you know, fabulous and really is needed. But they don't engage the postmodern or the post-secular or the post-colonial. So I actually wrote a review of, of that text and that was a, a kind of critique, a constructive critique of it. Why not go beyond modernity? And then Scott's book came out, I think, a year after that. And he does have a chapter on, you know, postmodern horizons. Um, I think he has a question mark, you know. So I think that he is he's, he's more reluctant, I think, to claim it as a framework. You know, he kind of hedges his bets a bit with the question mark. I'm not sure. I don't know whether he would situate himself as a theorist of the postmodern or postcolonial um, shift. But one thing that is, you know, really superb about Scott's book, which I, you know, want to alert listeners to is Scott's book is, it's a survey of all of Buddhism in America. So it's way more comprehensive 
you know, the my book. And so if, if listeners want to want a sense of the whole landscape of Buddhism in America, you know, they should start with his book. And I think he's also really good with globalization. So I think, yeah, another difference, I guess, with David and Scott is they both grapple with globalization much more than I do. You know, my work has really, you know, been much more kind of focused on the North American kind of lineages. Um, And also, I want to give a shout out to Scott and I are actually working on a project together. We're going to be working on a new book for Oxford on Buddhism in America. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, combining forces. Great. Glad to hear it. Now, let's dive into this this modernism and postmodernism. Your book describes a developing awareness of the limitations of Buddhist modernism, but also a sort of sandwich effect in which both traditional Buddhists are critiquing it, as well as those who draw more on post-structural, postmodern thought and theory and, and other critical resources too. What would be your meta view of this process at present? And what do you see as the potential outcomes coming down the road? Yeah, so I think, you know, in my introduction, I kind of take the mindfulness movement as an example of that, you know. So, I mean, there's a lot of critiques of the mindfulness movement, and I I unpack them in the chapter on it. But I did, you know, notice, you know, as a scholar, when I was tracking the critiques that, you know, on the one hand, you have more kind of traditional critiques, like, say, Alan Wallace is probably a good good example of this, or Afanasiro Biko, or some people know him as Ajahn Jeff. And so they critique mindfulness from, you know, a very kind of textual position. You know, they look at how does mindfulness appear in the Pali Canon and, you know, how does it appear in these, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, you know, and the critique is really pointing out, you know, the, the big differences between them. And then on the other hand, you've got, you know, this whole kind of slew of critiques, which are much more about like, you know, the problem with mindfulness is its complicity in neoliberalism and that Zizak was one of the first, you know, people to talk about Buddhism as this perfect kind of ideology for neoliberalism or I can't remember the exact quote. You're, Uh, You're talking about Slavoj Zizek. Basically drawing on an analogy between Weber's work on the Protestant ethic and capitalism, and he's saying that mindfulness is performing a similar function in capitalism now. So that critique is super different from the classical textual critique, right? They're two very different critiques. (laughs) But what you also find is a kind of combination of those critiques in the same critique. You know, there's a kind of slippage between textual traditionalist critique and then a kind of neoliberal critique. So I think, you know, David Loy and Ron Peirce's Beyond Mac mindfulness, you know, it, it's kind of the perfect example of that. So they kind of come at mindfulness from kind of two angles. So they talk about like what right mindfulness means in the you know in the Pali Canon and the suttas, and then they talk about you know like mindfulness is being used by institutions to you know make workers work more for pay less. And so yeah, I was really struck you know by this kind of combination, um, and I think that's definitely you know something that we're seeing more and more of in you know engaged Buddhism in different kind of strands of engaged. Buddhism. But, you know, it's also kind of interesting because, you know, that also is a mark of the postmodern and the postcolonial, where you do see this kind of maybe uneasy alliances between, you know, this kind of return to some kind of notion of the importance of, you know, traditional religion, but also, you know, a very kind of savvy kind of neo-Marxist political critique that's kind of happening at the same time. It's quite interesting. Um, I think and sometimes it can be really powerful and a really powerful form of critique. If I had a critique of that critique, it would be, 
yeah, I think it's true. You don't, you know, necessarily find support for, you know, secular or corporate mindfulness in the Pali canon. But I don't think that you necessarily find support for like neoliberal critiques either. I mean, there's a there's a creative hermeneutics happening. If you want to point out there's this gap between what's happening in the early Pali sutras and what's happening in contempt in secular corporate mindful in corporate mindfulness. I think you also have to point out that that's a big gap also between what's happening in kind of engaged Buddhism and the early suttas as well. Do you know what I mean? I just think that you need to be transparent about that. I think that you can make a hermeneutic, you can make an interpretive move, you know, you can read creatively, you know, the canonical literature. I don't know, I just sometimes feel that maybe that's a challenge for progressive Buddhists, you know. I sometimes feel they're not as transparent about their innovations as as they maybe should be. It's just something I'm ongoing kind of thinking about. Yeah, there's a lot more complexity than perhaps both forms of critique, you know, give on. Yeah, I think that the postmodern and the postcolonial uses the pre-modern in ways that are useful for its own ends, but on maybe necessarily faithful to pre-modern articulations in the same way of like what my critique is say of Stephen Batchelor it's kind of interesting I I reviewed his book for Yale and you know one of my main questions was it wasn't clear to me like are you making an argument are you advancing a secular reading of Buddhism or are you claiming that you know the secular exists in pre in pre-modern Buddhism and I think he went that he did you know he came out that second way and I think that's, you know, the limit of his work, you know, that he reads back a secularity in pre-modern Buddhism that I don't think is faithful to the pre-modern. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I think it's fine to read Buddhism in the cultural context of, you know, the time. I just, for me as a scholar, I think the problem is, is when you try and read it into the tradition when the historic evidence suggests otherwise. I mean, if there's historic evidence that suggests that, that's fine, that's fine. But often I don't think there is. Yeah, you mentioned a word before that some listeners might not be familiar with, which is hermeneutics, yeah. you know, which is the idea of translation, right? Yeah, just like a process of interpretation. It's good to bear in mind that all forms of contemporary Buddhism are always a form of hermeneutics to some degree, right? Yeah, I mean, I'd go further. I'd say all forms of Buddhism are a form of hermeneutics. Right. I, I wouldn't even just say contemporary. Yeah. It's interesting that point you're making there about transparency and honesty. I think there is a problem sometimes with religion more generally, and Buddhism doesn't escape it, of a certain form of defensiveness uh, when critique arrives. So that, you know, as you were saying, there's, a, there's always a power game going on within the discourses at play for those who are critiquing and then advancing something like mindfulness. I think for me, at least, as somebody who's, who's kind of on the edge of it all, when I read somebody like Slavoj Žižek, first of all, it's great to have such a powerful thinker engage critically with Buddhism. And I think it's a shame for me when a lot of contemporary Buddhists become defensive about that kind of critique and say, well, he hasn't you know, interpreted correctly what we understand as the right interpretation of Buddhism, and therefore his critique is invalid and we don't have to engage with it. I think it's actually useful for both you know, more traditional Buddhists, secular Buddhists, and those who are exploring postmodern ideas to actually be a little bit more open to the kinds of critique and work going on within the different Buddhist communities and have a more constructive engagement with it. But that's just my, I guess, my, my utopian thinking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, in a way, that's kind of your project, right? I mean, you're kind of... It is in part, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're really advocating for a more kind of historic 
kind of consciousness in Buddhist communities and a critical consciousness in Buddhist communities. Um, so, you know, as a scholar, I, you know, I agree. I, I, I kind of, you know, I think that would be a good thing. But I don't know. I mean, sometimes another colleague has challenged me, you know, has said, like, you want practitioners to be scholars. Like, are you asking too much of practitioners? Like, you know, I'm not sure. I think that, like, with you, I'd say that would be an ideal. You know, historic consciousness and critical consciousness can and does, you know, really push up against, you know, religious narratives. Do we want the historic and critical to totally flatten, you know, the religious narrative? You know, because historic and critical perspectives are often rooted, you know, essentially in a materialist orientation, right? And some of the religious narratives, you know, Buddhist narratives are kind of interrogating the foundations of historic and critical kind of thought. I think that we should acknowledge that. Like if we just bring in an historical and material, like how much of Buddhism will, would survive? You know, what would be left of Buddhism if there was just an historical and kind of critical consciousness there? I mean, would it even be Buddhism or would it be like Buddhist study? You know, would we, would they be too, you know, would, would, it, would, it, would it be different than what we're doing in the academy? So I don't know. I mean, like you, I'm I'm really fascinated of the relationship between, you know, historical and critical scholarship and Buddhist communities. And I think, you know, podcasts like yours, you know, as I say in my book, are, you know, one of amongst other things that are really erasing, not erasing, but, make, you know, like softening the boundary between academic and practice communities. Uh, and I think that's a, you know, a really great thing. And I'm actually really excited about it. I'd like to write a lot more with a much more focus on it. Um, but when we say, is it a good thing? I mean, it's like good for who? I mean, good for us because that because we you know, you know, I don't know if it's good for practitioners. You see what I mean? It's a good question. I understand the dilemma and uh, it's certainly something I give thought to as well. I don't presume at any point to to be in a position that's superior to others. I think we're, we're challenged by the circumstances of our time, which brings us back to, you know, history is something that's emergent. And, and living and material. But I think there's a big question, which is an ethical question that I think many Buddhists do have to consider. And I think they're kind of compelled to do so by the particular moment in history in which we, we you know, we inhabit. And that is, we we can't put the genie back in the bottle, you know, the knowledge is out there. We're at a, a stage where we have so much access to certain types of human knowledge that anything that's not at least some attempt at honest engagement with ideas ends up looking like some form of self-preservation or retreat from what we know, the, the, the truths of the, the, the knowledge, the accumulation of knowledge that we currently hold. And I think that figures like um, Stephen Batchelor are easy to critique from that perspective because he draws so heavily from the Western intellectual tradition and makes quite strong claims about what he's doing. I find it interesting personally as a practitioner, but also as somebody who's sort of analysing and critiquing contemporary Buddhism to some degree. I always wonder, you know, to some degree in the back of my mind, there's this question, well, what is the payoff in doing so? What's the trade-off? And, you know, what would happen to his project in a similar way, as you said before, if he were to take seriously some of the critique of his own ideas? At the same time, and maybe this ends up sounding a bit relative, but I kind of assume that human beings will continue to do what they do. Some of them will you know, listen and pay attention and go, wow, that's kind of interesting to me too. And many of them will do what they're doing currently, which is say, you know what, that's that might be true, but I'm actually not that interested. I'm just going to keep doing what I do. And my community gives me something that I need that's meaningful. And I think that means that a lot of Buddhist communities are in a way very similar to the evangelical Christian communities, where they have a certain trade-off between 
their need for certain experiences as a community and as individual practitioners and with the the knowledge and the facts on the ground that we have that come from the academic and scientific world. I kind of feel that part of my job is to to look at the space in between and say, well, there's actually opportunity there as well, right? It's not just a statement about what people should do and shouldn't do. It's also an interesting sort of, uh, well, I guess I'd say ethnographic analysis as well of, well, those are great questions, but what is it that people are actually doing? Because we're all flawed to some degree, we're all ignorant, and we're all trying to make do to some degree. And it's kind of fascinating to look at the different ways that people carry on those projects. And I think, at least for me, that, that allows me to have a what we might define in Buddhism as a more tolerant, compassionate, and kind perspective on the great variety of human experience that's currently unfolding and, and much of you know which you, you write about in your book. But that's a slightly longer answer than I wanted to give you. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot there. You're thinking on the fly sometimes in these conversations, but I'd kind of like to stick to our questions. And, and I think the next one might link back anyway to what we've just said. I'd like to say something about the end of the book, actually, because I think it will give some more context to people that might be thinking about purchasing it. You use this phrase, you say that the book concludes that American Buddhism is uh, witnessing the emergence of a new period marked by enlightenments, that's in the plural, beyond the European Enlightenment, which I really like. Maybe this is a bad question to ask you, but I'm going to do it anyway. How did you reach this conclusion and what do you mean by it? For the listeners, you know, you'd sent me that question and I was like really glad because I wanted to, you know, I really like that sentence and I yeah. wanted to call the book that sentence, you know, I wanted that to be the title Enlightenment Beyond the Enlightenment. So basically, you know, obviously it's a play on, you know, the Buddhist notion of liberation, which is, you know, popularly kind of talked about as enlightenment um, and the European enlightenment. You know, the framework of Buddhist modernism, for those of, you know, those listeners who aren't as familiar with it as me and you, is the, the Buddhisms that we've kind of inherited since, you know, colonialism are really kind of selective. They're not false, but they're very selective visions of Buddhism. And they are selective visions that have been chosen um, really because of their resonance with the values of the European Enlightenment. So the scientific, you know, the Buddha is, you know, this early scientist and the Buddha is like an empiricist. Um, and essentially, you know, in all the case studies that I found, I, I found in so many different ways, you know, really in, in, in often in radically different communities, like I think Buddhist geeks and, you know, the racial justice communities are really different. But what I found common to all of them was that they were trying to think about, you know, liberation in ways that weren't as as confined within the kind of, in like, you know, the modernist paradigm. A good example, you know, I think is this notion of um, collective liberation. There's this rhetoric of it's not enough to attain individual liberation, but we have to be awakened collectively, you know, and the shift to the collective, I think, is, you know, really a mark of post-colonial and post-kind of modern kind of thought. So that would be one of the enlightenments beyond the enlightenment. It's not going back to, you know, the understanding of, you know, enlightenment in Buddhaghosa's, you know, kind of articulation of the insight path. I mean, it's obviously radically different than that, you know, so it's not going back, but it's not modernist either. So, well, what I'm seeing in my ethnographic work and what I imagine that will just continue kind of proliferating are these different interpretations, hermeneutics, I just really like that word, sorry, of what does liberation mean? You know, what does it mean for black Buddhist practitioners? What does, in terms of the, you know, social and historic context of racism in the United States? And yeah, I just think that American Buddhists are 
developing basically in a way new kind of ideas of Buddhist you know soteriology of what suffering is and how to be free from suffering um, that you know that take inspiration from the from the canon but are not faithful kind of renderings of the canon did, did that answer it sorry I kind of got in a bit lost as I was <laughs> as, as I was responding do you have any other ideas about other types of enlightenment beyond just the example you gave us of this switch from the individual to the collective does anything else come to mind well, let me give an example that kind of also relates to your answer to the previous question about other discourses, like other discourses that you think Buddhism should be engaging with, right? So, for example, one of the chapters is on the sex scandals, um, which you know have been a kind of reoccurring issue uh, in Western Buddhism. And the chapters on basically just focuses on the Zen community. You know, one of the conclusions drawn from those scandals, because they involved teachers that were considered enlightened, you know, considered kind of kind of Japanese masters, Aido Shimano and um, Joshu Suzaki, it really made a lot of who were, you know, engaging in repeated kind of sexual misconduct and sexual abuse. Not all, but some Zen practitioners really think about what does it mean to be enlightened? And I think that, like, if you look at someone like Barry Majid, he's a Zen teacher and a psychoanalyst. He basically makes a distinction between, you know, the kind of libera liberation that can be achieved through kind of Buddhist meditation and Buddhist practice, and then a kind of psychodynamic maturity, right? So he kind of advocates for bringing in another discourse into Buddhism. So he's basically saying, you know, there's something incomplete at least for us Westerners, he's, you know, talking to white middle-class Westerners, basically. There's something in incomplete in the Buddhist model. Like, it's not enough just to practice Zen. Like, you can practice Zen, you can achieve these Zen states, and you could still be really immature. You could still have these, you know, fucked up relationships, uh, sorry for swearing, these, like, you know, fucked up relationships. And you actually, to be enlightened around psychodynamics, you want to turn to psychoanalytic theory, right? Like, you need other training. So in a way, that's a reshaping of, of a liberation. It's kind of saying the training and the model of enlightenment isn't, isn't enough. It's not sufficient. So, you know, he kind of brings in, I would say, a kind of psychoanalytic enlightenment, an illumination of human behavior through psychoanalytic theory. So that's really different than what's happening with collective awakening, which is really looking at, you know, what does it mean to be awakened in terms of social structures? You know, and that's more turned into like, you know, kind of social and cultural theory and critical race theory. So they're very different new enlightenments, but they're both basically, you know, rooted in an acknowledgement of Buddhist practice, at least as it's come through, you know, in the West, is not sufficient on its own to address these kind of shadow areas. I guess shadow is, you know, another phrase that's become quite common. You know, there's still going to be these areas of unconsciousness, whether it's a structural unconsciousness, right, whether you're unconscious to the way, you know, racial conditioning plays out, or whether it's a psychodynamic unconsciousness that you're, you know, you're unconscious around like id or whatever your interpersonal dynamics yeah, so I'd say that, you know, that's another example. They're, they're, these are examples of new forms of Buddhism that are essentially saying we need other discourses and other forms of knowledge to illuminate these unconscious areas. And then they kind of frame it all in a kind of awakening metaphor. 
So, yeah, is that a better answer, maybe more clear? Yeah, that's a good example. And I think that's helpful. So thank you. The other thing that came up to mind uh, when you were speaking is, is also this, this, um, this recognition that, you know, Buddhism as a whole has generally lacked a sophisticated understanding of the role of something like ideology, which in itself, you know, brings us back to this idea of, of the collective, right, of self being formed within collective forces and collective spaces that go beyond the mind of the individual. And I think that a lot of contemporary Buddhism, some of it's attempting to grapple with that and other forms are resistant to it. But that's also that's also an area of, 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 of I would say, exciting new emergences within contemporary Western discourse. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's really an area, I think, where you've, you know, kind of done a lot of work on and a lot of work of promoting. I mean, the first person that obviously comes to mind would be like Glenn Wallace, right? Yeah. And you've yep. you've given Glenn Wallace a lot of attention. And so, yeah, I, I think that would be, you know, an analogous, sorry, kind of example of, you know, what are, what are these areas that, you know, modern discourses, be it psychodynamic, I don't think Glenn Wallace likes psychodynamics, but, you know, psychodynamics, critical theory, social conditioning, whiteness, like they are theories, they're modern contemporary theories, right, that attempt to illuminate unconscious areas. I'm not using un- un- the unconscious in a Freudian sense or anything here, but just in a sense of it's a way of seeing reality that is not always you know that is not immediately apparent to us right so I think for me you know I teach because I do a lot of classes on you know say Asian religions in America um so I always teach in those classes critical race theory I mean in a way it is kind of like a religious kind of awakening in a sense for the Mm -hmm. students because you know it's a it's a form of like knowledge I mean not for all of them obviously this is just like for the ones that really impact but it's a form of knowledge that like opens up a whole new way of seeing the world and also a whole new way of understanding understanding their own subjectivity it's the same with like gender studies you know if you really really learn if you really take in these kind of critical theories or critical theories are umbrella term that refers to a lot of different theories put under that umbrella it is an awakening of sorts you know it's it's i i really i actually find it as a as a professor tremendously exciting for me to see those moments of you know awakening in my students you know it's like a new perspective on reality and i think you know a lot of maybe buddhists feel like that when they do a vipassana course they experience reality in a different way you know they might have an experience of impermanence there's a kind of clink in the armor of the normal sense of self but yeah i think you know critical theory can do that work i really do well i'd I'd agree with you you know i've spoken about this and reiterated the same point that engagement with these ideas and these intellectual traditions is itself a form of awakening and i think buddhists again if i was to go back to the point we discussed before i think that would be an interesting shift away from a narrow view of what it would mean to go through awakening or enlightenment it actually could encompass a great deal more and could encompass different forms of awakening that uh, disrupt the continuity of self of course one point i would make just because i think i kind of need to is that some of the theoretical assumptions that uh, abound in, in gender studies and other faculties do have the danger, though, of becoming themselves forms of ideological indoctrination. And I think, you know, one of the challenges there that Buddhism can be quite useful for in certain types of meditative practice would be to enable people to to not switch from identification from one worldview straight into another without thinking about those new views critically as well. Maybe that's the difference between a kind of new worldview becoming religious uh, or becoming just a part of the ongoing process of, of expanding our capacity to look at the world and see it more clearly and think about it more critically and creatively, right? 
Yeah, yeah, I kind of see what you're saying. I just, I guess it makes me kind of wonder, like, is there, is there any position that's not a form of ideology? Do you know what right. I mean? Yeah, I mean, sure. It's a good question. I, I mean, I'm, I mean, in a way, it's just like a endless kind of recondition. It's, it's kind of, it's not like you ever step outside of ideology or of. Mm-hmm. A situatedness, right? It's um, right, yeah. it's just like you're re- in in a way. It's like what you say. You kind of you know recondition yourself in another way. Because I think you know, having spent like half my life in the academy, you know, some of the greatest proponents of you know critical theory, say, because I know that's something that's kind of near and dear dear to your heart. You know, I find them like extremely ideological. You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course. they're like the most ideological people that I've ever met. Um, yes. So, you know, that also is an interesting question about the real, yeah, the relationship between self, selfhood and ideological identification, which I think you also kind of asked me about in one of the questions. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I guess it points to, you know, the need to kind of hold theories kind of lightly. Mm-hmm. I think maybe just also a little bit of humility. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you you do see that definitely, you know, you do see people swapping religious identities for academic identities and, you know, also vice versa, you know. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, it's, it's a deep question. I, I don't, I'm not really equipped to, to answer it. Like, is there an identity <laughs> outside of ideology? Well, it's, it's a question that, that, that has come up is, is often in the background of the conversations I have, but I would agree with the point that we're always within some form of ideological function and that, uh, I think there are a lot of interesting uh, ideas and points that Glenn makes in his work, which is why I'm so attracted to it and continue to work with it myself, that provide partial answers to the kinds of things we're discussing right now. And I think that they're, they're at the edge of, of exploring what could be possible. It also makes me think of this metamodern area, which is slowly developing, um, because in a sense, the metamodern ideal is a response to the limits of modernity and postmodernity, and kind of asks the question, well, if we're stuck in these relationships, which never go away, and if we're always with in some form of entrapment within ideology, then perhaps the questions we're, we should be asking should change too. And one of those is how do we develop more effective relationships with the sort of knowledge that are available to us and the identities that go along with them? And I certainly think you picked up on a key word there, which is humility, which you know is a word that uh, can be used at both the emotional and the intellectual level, and is certainly uh, a resource that's not perhaps as widely spread as it should be. But uh, Let's go back to the text and let's talk a little bit about postmodernity because it, it, is, it has an important role in your book. We'll also talk about multiple modernities in a moment, but let's just say a little bit about postmodernity and its relationship with knowledge, which is kind of what we're implicitly talking about anyway. Postmodernity can be understood in different ways, of course, but one of them is as a sort of development of modernity or a form of late modernity. One major feature identified in the introduction to your book is that this shift to postmodernity could be understood as a shift in epistemologies or ways of knowing and understanding. And implicitly, this would mean that it's destabilize, destabilizing pre-existing ways of knowing, but also questions about what knowledge is and what it's about and about who owns knowledge too, right? Can you, can you speak to this and expand on how current and emergent trends in Western Buddhism may or may not be aligned with aspects of postmodernity and this kind of rethinking our relationship with ways of knowing? Yeah, yeah. Your questions are 
<laughs> so <laughs> there's a lot in your questions. All right, I'm going to answer that, but I just want to make one small point about the other thing because it just struck me as you know quite significant that I just noticed this about both of us, right? That even as we're talking about can we ever escape, you know, ideology, and you know, or is there ever a you know a position that's not kind of ideologically situated? And then you said something about yeah, you know, we're, we're always entangled or stuck in these relationships. Like even the expression of that is it's it, it's really modernist, right? It's really <laughs> like we are entangled. Why would we think of it as entanglement or why would we think of it as something stuck? Do do you see what I mean? There's there's always a sense of I am in this, you know, and it just makes me just realize just a kind of, I don't know, just a kind of impossibility of like thinking the self, you know, outside of this kind of individual kind of model, you know, or we might as well make the most of it because we're stuck in relationship, <laughs> you know, rather than I, you know, I exist as a relationship, you know. Right, right, right. Yes. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's just a really, yeah, it's a really fascinating and interesting conversation. Okay. So I just want to make that point because it just kind of is kind of, uh, I, I felt like we were performing, you know, what we were kind of struggling with. Um, so in terms of, you know, the postmodern, so I basically, I just, I just want to clarify, you know, a couple of things about how I use the postmodern. The postmodern, you know, it's a really, as I say, you know, in the introduction, it's a really problematic term. It means many things to so many people. Some people only think of it in a very selective way. And, you know, and actually Yale said, take the, my editor at Yale was like, don't use the postmodern, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like she, that was her advice at the start of the project. I use the postmodern in the introduction, you know, as a, both in a very general sense as an extension of modernity and also as a critique of modernity. And then in the conclusion, I look at some of the limits of using postmodern and, you know, address some of the terms. Um, But in your question, really at the heart of it is a question about the epistemological consequences of postmodernity. For listeners who aren't, you know, versed in postmodernism, you know, I would just say in a most very basic sense that, you know, one of the biggest kind of hits of the postmodern is on the primacy of reason, um, understanding things, you know, scientifically and through reason. So it kind of destabilizes privileging of reason um, and, and the scientific method. And that has a lot of consequences, you know, politically and culturally, for instance, you know, that it does, you know, the postmodern has opened the postmodern holding hands with the postcolonial right has really opened doors for taking other forms of knowledge other epistemologies more seriously like for a good example probably like you know the the modern relationship to kind of indigenous knowledge um I'm, I'm, I'm doing I'm, I'm, I've got quotation marks, you know, because obviously this is a problematic term, but you know as superstitious or um, as non-rational. And so I think that you know you do see that privileging of reason and the scientific method in modern Buddhism. Don Lopez says, you know the modern Buddha is the, you know is a scientific Buddha. In terms of how it is affect how that how that epistemological shift has affected American Buddhism on the ground, I'd say three main ways, right? I'd say one is, push back against um, the dismissal of more traditional forms of Buddhism. 
one of the kind of core components of Buddhist modernism in North America has been this distinction between, you know, cultural baggage Buddhism, folk Buddhism, superstitious, you know, it's just culture. And, you know, this kind of authentic, real Buddhism, pure Buddhism, original Buddhism. So you've had this dichotomy and one of the most kind of pernicious ways that the dichotomy has played out is that cultural Buddhism has been kind of mapped onto kind of Asian American communities or Asian communities and the real authentic Buddhism, you know, freed from culture, you know, transcendent Buddhism has hmm. been kind of claimed by white Buddhists. So because postmodernism has really destabilize that kind that you know that split is is really indebted to this kind of modernist universalism right but because postmodern postmodernism has undermined you know that kind of transcendent perspective i think that it's the repercussions of that on the ground for american buddhism as being also a real you know many different people are really troubling that dynamic practitioners on the ground we're realizing, for example, actually, I think Natalie, I want to give uh, acknowledgement to Natalie Cooley. She wrote a great post on Facebook where she, it was a meme, and it was brilliant. It was like, all forms of Buddhism are cultural. Oh, I got that one. That's a good one. Yeah. I think maybe Scott actually covered it in an article he wrote on Shin Buddhism. He did. He, he reproduced it. I actually got it from his article. That's an effect on the ground, I think, in, you know, American Buddhist communities, I think most visibly being seen in racial justice work and also in, I think, you know, a little bit more humility on the part of white Buddhists. Of mm-hmm. Not all of them, you know, there's plenty who are still like holding, you know, hold, holding the, where the, you know, this is real Buddhism and that's cultural baggage. That rhetoric's not gone away, but there's been a challenge to that. And you're all, and one of the practical on the ground results of that is I think that you're seeing more conversations and kind of work happening across, you know, different Buddhist communities, you know, so you're seeing the emergence of like um, a good one is the North, I think it's called North American Buddhist Alliance. It's a kind of a meta organization. They do a lot of work online, but they're basically bringing, you know, different Buddhist communities together that haven't always been, you know, in conversation or have actually, you know, I think one of the things that Scott does is, you know, that there have been moments of connection, but that have been kind of ignored. Um, But I'd say definitely one main consequence of this epistemological challenge is really troubling that kind of cultural baggage and authentic Buddhism distinction. I want to acknowledge the Secular Buddhist Association. Jennifer Hawkins is the diversity and inclusion kind of leader in that community. And she's been, you know, she's been writing all of these posts for, you know, her fellow secular Buddhist uh, members, you know, really encouraging them to think about the ways that they use the term cultural baggage, you know, and how they think about secularism and to consider the ways that, you know, a kind of secular uh, arrogance can, you know, really do real harm to Asian American Buddhists and, and others on the ground. So I don't think Jennifer Hawkins is, I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but my guess is, that uh, you know, these Buddhist practitioners are not sitting in their houses and reading postmodern, you know, <laughs> epistemological literature. Right, right? Yeah. It's not like, you know, they're reading it and them going into their communities. But the effects of the postmodern I guess one thing that I'd noticed in your questions was, and this might be wrong, so correct me, but I kind of had the assumption that 
often when you're asking about the influence of postmodern theory, it seemed that you were thinking about it in in a, in a more like direct way of like, are Buddhist teachers reading postmodern theory and then bringing it to their communities? And I think very, very few are doing that, you know, but the effects of the postmodern and the postcolonial are they're not coming through as as conscious agents you know they're shaping us in ways as subjects like they're forces of conditioning rather than intentional acts does that make sense yeah yeah it certainly does yeah so i just wanted to kind of mention that and say and then the other ways i think in which postmodern epistemological challenges are showing up on the ground one is definitely in racial justice work because i'd say as a main point i think that whiteness is really linked to universalism, not just in American Buddhism, but in America in general. Like there's a slippage between the white subject and the universal subject. And so you're really seeing, and I've got, you know, a whole chapter on the book on this, but you're really seeing so many different Buddhist challenges to that universal, to the universalist white subject. You know, that white Buddhism, it's a modernist subject, basically. So challenges to whiteness are challenges to the modern subject. If you didn't know post postmodern epistemology, you might not read those changes through that lens. But I think it's happening in a colloquial way, right? So for example, one of the um, people that I worked with in uh, the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, La Sarmiento, who runs a POC group, affinity group, you know, I asked La, have, how have some other Sangha members uh, responded to, you know, you having a POC, you know, only group? And La said, well, Many of them have been like, why, why do you need a separate group? You know, where, and, and, you know, and law, they use the pronoun they, law said, you know, the people who were challenging the POC group would say things like, we're all one, we're all one, you know, why do we need these separate groups when we're all one? And law said in response, which I thought was super funny and smart, yes, but whose one are we being? You know, and I use that as a, I think it's a conclusion title, whose one are we being? So when you start like interrogating that one, the one does not stand as a common subject. It stands as the white kind of voice. And I'd also say not just white, but a very classed white middle-class voice um, in the Sangha, you know, and it doesn't represent the plurality of practitioners. So, I mean, the problem with, you know, universalism and modernity is there, there, there isn't a universal subject. The subject is already very situated. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it's already, it's already a selective subject. So anyway, I think, you know, racial justice work definitely is the place to look for the impact of postmodern epistemological challenges. And then the final one, sorry, there's there's a loads here, I know, but the final one is, I would say, a pushback to the scientism or the science and scientism of the mindfulness movement, right? Right. Because, you know, the, the mainstream mindfulness movement is really based on, it's very based on a modernist epistemology of, you know, science as this legitimating framework. Mm-hmm. And I think there's been a lot of really interesting critiques. Um, I think, you, did you have Evan Thompson on a few? I did, yes. Yeah. You know, he's working on the ground with the mindfulness movement and his work's been a, a kind of challenge to, to that kind of naive scientism. And then I'd say like how that's feeding back into Buddhist communities is 
You've got people like Linda Human. Linda Human's a really fantastic writer. Um, she she did a series on Buddhism and modernity for Tricycle, and there's, she has several different interviews in the series. I think she actually, I think one of them is Evan Thompson and Willoughby Britton, some Curtis, I've forgotten his name, a cultural critic. So she she interviews you know people working in the mindfulness movement, and she's really pushing this kind of critique of this kind of naive scientism in the mindfulness movement and asking, you know, what is lost if we assimilate Buddhism to a scientific paradigm? That that project is a, it is a postmodern epistemological project. It's challenging the primacy of the modern epistemology of reason and science. Not, not saying there's no place for that, obviously. I mean, I'm totally not into the, you know, I'm not, I'm not into anti-science, um, but it's kind of troubling its monopoly right it's tr- it's troubling it's like dominant having like the you know the booming voice and i think that's a really good thing so i think that like i just want to say this one last thing sorry i'm talking <laughs> loads but i think that like i want to say for listeners in general when we think about the influence of postmodernism and postcolonialism postsecular cuz i kind of use those three in the in the conclusion on contemporary buddhism we're not we can't just think about it literally as Buddhists are reading this theory and then taking it back to the Sangha. We're thinking of it as these major cultural shifts that are constituting us now as subjects that most of us aren't even aware of, right? They are kind of giving us new senses of subjectivity and they're making some of us, I'm using us, I mean, it's a problematic term, but they're, they're, they're producing different types of questions in Buddhist Sanghas, you know, that are happening. And I just find that really exciting. And I just find it really, really exciting. Sorry, I'm totally geeking out here. It's fine. There's space for that on this podcast. That's an interesting answer. And there's a lot, again, a lot you said there. I mean, these these uh, topics are so rich and nuanced. And there's a lot that could be spoken about many of those different facets. And I think you've picked up on some interesting ones there. I, uh, as a white male, of course, uh, I, I guess I, I should define myself as cisgender too in the common parlance these days. I have a certain instinctive suspicion of certain forms of critique that are emerging in the current culture, but I'm not against them. Well, as you'll know from my, my own writing in previous podcast episodes, I do have a, a strong, let's say, instinctive rejection of, of just being formed into new forms of ideological subject. But without going down that road too much, I like the fact that you defined this theory of whiteness as a means for understanding a certain kind of selfhood that was developed within modernity. I like the way that you fixed it onto that label, because that makes far more sense to me. It's interesting that communities, not just Buddhist communities, obviously, but communities more widely have a challenge of, of wrestling with where are the points at which we get to new forms of, of shared weeness, which you described as a problematic pronoun. And of course it is. But I think one of the challenges that identity politics does bring up is it's not that we should reject all forms of a universal selfhood or a universal identity that enough of us can get behind, but the fact that the modern sense of, of, of we or the universal we, as you rightly indicated, is so loaded with so much culture, politics and history that it is inherently problematic. But I think we do need a new form of us that we're going to have to come up with at some point. And I would like, uh, again, that's my utopian thinking, I would hope that perhaps Buddhist communities can participate in that too, especially as they navigate the whole paradox of, of thinking about non-selfhood and the challenges to identity from their own theoretical background. Anyway, it's all complex, and I don't want to go down another tangent. You don't want to go down the white male. 
a white male no, word. I think, uh, yeah, you're probably a good person to do that with, but I'm not sure. <laughs> that would be the best direction for us to take right now. One thing I did want to say, though, is I think that the point you made about cultural baggage is really, really important. And I think it's worth the more scientific leaning Buddhists to just consider two points. The first one is how they use science to validate their own claims about the forms of practices they're engaging in and the sorts of identities they're forming within those groups. I think that's a useful line of inquiry. The second one is recognizing that, you know, the scientism itself is also a form of cultural baggage, of course, as is secularism and the kinds of uh, the kinds of promises that secularism has has made as a modernist project within itself. And I think, again, my, my call for Buddhists to engage with the kind of knowledge that's available would actually be to recognize that that's not something they need to necessarily be defensive about, but they could actually gain great benefit from. Um, you know, there's a reason, of course, that scholars of religious studies have now started talking about post-secularism. And I think there are important reasons why secular practitioners might want to give that a bit of attention, right? And think about how that yeah. might impact their own ways of thinking, but also the axiomatic claims they make about what they can and can't do and what they are and aren't doing with their own practices and discourse. You know, I heard kind of a couple of things in, in kind of what you say. I mean, one is a kind of play for like, you know, everyone, you know, to have more self-awareness and transparency, mm -hmm. you know, about their own positions. I think like with, with secularism and kind of scientism, one of the dangers is that it can easily see itself as a kind of transcendent position. Yeah. So in some ways, it's kind of harder for it to recognize its own embeddedness. So I think that's a particular a challenge for those communities. And then I think with like, you know, religious identity, religious, you know, identity has its own challenges because just sectarianism, just within like traditional Buddhism, whatever. It's hard to use the category of traditional Buddhism. Yeah. And there's plenty of claims in traditional Buddhism to bird's eye perspectives of reality or the most authentic place. But obviously, they take a little bit of a different form than the ones that we find in, you know, the secular world. But, you know, yeah, you know, as a kind of scholar and just as a where I'm at as a human being, I think, yeah, I generally, you know, would plea for just trying to be a little bit more transparent about your own ideological ground. I mean, some people won't even be able to handle thinking they have an ideological <laughs> ground, you know. So, you know, or just whatever your position is. Um, but of course, you know, that's super threatening as well. I mean, and, you know, another thing is, you know, just as I'm talking, I, I realize, I mean, we talk about these things as kind of intellectual positions, but they're like, so they're, you know, they're, they're emotional states. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's such affective, you know, ways of being in the world. As you say, you know, challenges to them does take a kind of mature psyche to kind of tolerate that kind of challenge. And I mean, getting back to kind of whiteness, just kind of slipping a bit of whiteness in here, you know, <laughs> I do think investigating whiteness is like a massive challenge to the ego. I'm doing some kind of white awake um, work in a spiritual group that I'm in. It's, it's not Buddhist. It's another group that I'm, I'm also a practitioner. And we're doing this kind of white awake work in the wider context of the spiritual context, but mostly a lot of critical theory around whiteness. It's just been incredibly challenging. I mean, I, I feel like my ego has been way more decentered by kind of taking on whiteness as a form of conditioning than it has in like you know, 20 years of like meditating. <laughs> it's a real challenge. And I think that, 
I don't know. I just want to kind of encourage you. I mean, maybe, you know, this is something for us to have a personal conversation about because I don't want to kind of get all in, you know, into the politics of it. But as someone who is, you know, as you are so committed to, you know, critical theory and kind of illuminating conditioning and ideological blind spots, I encourage you to kind of put your ideas of social justice warriors or whatever aside and just think about whiteness as a form of conditioning that you might not be fully aware of how that like structures you in the world. I mean, it's just really powerful. And I think you're a white male. So obviously, I think this topic is quite challenging. I mean, it's challenging for me as a white female, but I'm like, oh, well, I'm queer. So I'm a bit, you know, I've got a little bit of, you know, more street cred. Um, well, in certain grooves, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but we're also like English, you know, that's another thing. Yeah, you know, yeah like, absolutely. There's another kind of like cultural context here, but I think like one thing that might be interesting is I think class is a category of maybe social structuralism that you're more maybe open to exploring. Mm -hmm. But the relationship between class and whiteness is super interesting. And for me, that was a real way in was a real kind of opening. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just I just kind of want to encourage, you know, in as we're both, you know, saying now how great it would be if more Buddhists did more kind of critical theory. I'm just going to personalize that and say it would be great if you as did a little bit more digging into the ideology of whiteness. Okay. Great. Well, uh, you know, I'm happy to receive that from you and uh, I will give it some thought. Uh, all good. Now, talking about the social consequences of, of some of this thought, whether it's on whiteness or race or tendency for white Buddhists to, to often confuse their own modernist assumptions with claims about universal reality. If we were to look at some more, let's say, practical examples of how things are changing across the American Buddhist landscape, it might be worth us talking a little bit more about sex scandals, as you mentioned it previously. One thing I really appreciated about the book was actually the chapter which touches on the sex scandals in American Buddhism, partly because it was so nuanced. You know, I've I got to be honest, when I saw the title, I was a little bit apprehensive. I thought, oh no, yeah, it's going to be just a, a long diatribe complaining about male power and stuff, which is fine. That has its place. I didn't have high expectations. And when I read it and I saw how nuanced it was, I was really quite pleased and I found it very stimulating as a read. And again, I think practitioners will find that beneficial because of its nuance. You draw quite a lot on the work of a lady who I hadn't heard of before called Grace. Is it Shireson or Shireson? Oh, I'm not sure. I always pronounce things wrong. I think it's Shireson, okay. but I might have it wrong. Great. Sorry, Grace, if you're listening. Yeah, well, sorry for me too, because it's nice to get people's names right. But um, she, she explores the complexity of the issues in a way, again, which was very revealing um, and that went beyond simply, you know, talking about an oppressor male figure who's been exploiting, you know, female followers, which... I have to say, just to to make one personal point of my own in this conversation, I've been quite outraged by the abuse of power and sexual exploits of figures like Sogyal Rinpoche. And I found it quite frustrating on many counts. But I also think there's something to be said about the fact that uh, a lot of practitioners have been quite naive and have often allowed themselves to trade in their autonomy, their critical thinking skills and, and personal authority for the payoffs that come about from certain types of dysfunctional relationships and the adoption of irrational beliefs. Now, I think, again, both things are going on. There are certainly people who were truly victims, uh, who suffered a great deal. And I also think there are those who, who've, who've made a certain kind of trade-off 
but nevertheless did not deserve to receive the sort of behavior they that they got from these figures who were supposedly enlightened and so forth. But, you know, referring more fully to the nuance and the complexity of these issues, what stood out for you in particular in your reading of Grace? And what did you get out of writing that chapter? Um, yeah, I mean, it was, I think, you know, one of my favorite chapters. And um, it's a it's a area that I've been really kind of intrigued with for a long time and kind of been returning to it in different in different ways. And I also want to make a shout out that I'm actually working on a whole book now um, on that topic oh, okay. because it is yeah, it's a complicated topic and definitely, you know, needs more treatment than just one chapter. And I'm, I'm working on the book with Amy Langenberg, who's my colleague. Um, and maybe I'll talk a little bit about it at the end. I think it's a really important chapter because you talked before about how, you know, so many Buddhists are kind of threatened by bringing in different knowledge, different discourses, and they want to stay within just a Buddhist framework. But I think with the sex scandals, you know, I think if anything has shown the need <laughs> to bring in different discourses and different knowledges in Buddhism, I think it's the sex scandals, right? You know, the reoccurrence of them, the fact that they've occurred across lineages with different Asian teachers, uh, Western and student, it really shows that there's a problem here. And in the Zen community, there are a lot of figures that have responded. But I was really wanting to think about the psychoanalytic depth psychology lineage. So I basically looked, you know, across, you know, the Zen community and asked who are three teachers that kind of really best represent a kind of mature response, a psychological response. Mm -hmm. You know, so I do Grace, Barry Majid and Diane Hamilton. Um, so Grace, she was an easy choice, basically. She's really done a lot of work in two main areas. So one is um, she was a major contributor to Sweeping Zen. Adam Tebe, who, you know, was the, was the running Sweeping Zen, was actually a student of Greece. And so when he first started Sweeping Zen, it was meant more as a kind of, it was going to be a platform to do like biographies of teachers. Um, but then about two years into the project, it really started to become nearly like, you know, 80% of the articles are about the sexual abuse scandals. Like it devoted so much time to kind of exposing them and to giving voices kind of critical reflections. I think a big part of this, I'm sh I can't ask Adam now because he's in a different kind of place in his life. I mean, I did interview him a couple of times, you know, when I was working on the chapter and he had mentioned what an influence Grace had been on him and him devoting the, the visibility. So I think Grace had that massive impact of bringing visibility to these scandals. And her articles are, I think her articles are the second and third most viewed and most commented on. I got all the statistics of the, you know, the sweep and zen. I, I can't remember them right now, but with something like, you know, her, her article had like 15,000 views. Wow. So she was, you know, really getting a lot of exposure. So for that reason, I chose her because she was such a public figure. But then the other reason why she was really interesting to me was because, you know, she wasn't just talking about the scandals and how, you know, what had caused them and ways forward. But she was actually, she developed this training program, um, which I cover in some detail in, in the book. I think it was called Spot Training. Mm -hmm. um, she retired like when the book was in press. So the program is no more, which was just like, <laughs> no, you know, yeah. So I was like, but luckily the book was impressed, so I didn't have to rewrite that chapter. But she did this program, I think she did it for like three to five years. Um, 
And, you know, it was basically a training program and a big component of like different, you know, different Zen practitioners and teachers come together. And as part of the program, they would really think about what are the kind of group dynamic or factors in enabling this kind of abuse and behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was really kind of sophisticated and, and helpful what she did. Like they did things like role plays. A lot of the scandals have been between men and women. So that was the kind of main model that they were working with mainly. But this female student is, you know, attached to you and you're feeling lonely and something happens. Like, you know, it was basically like, what would you do in this situation? You know, what's, and then act it out and then think together as a group what would be another way to respond like how could you perform boundaries here Uh or you know you're a female student and your male teacher makes a pass at you what's a way that you can respond and so i just thought that was really innovative yeah agreed um and i think that like i'm i'm really actually quite impressed to see some of the work that's being done in Soto Zen, I want to give a shout out to Soto Zen communities um, to really tackle these issues. Um, so I just actually, for the new project that we're working on, Amy and I, we just talked to the abbot um, at the San Francisco Zen Center in Los Angeles. Her name is Roshi Wendy. I forgot, I've forgotten her full name, but she's an abbot there and they've just developed this incredible it's called the Sangha Sutra, and it's it's basically like this manual, this kind of 50-page manual, which she was kind enough to share with us, which gives a history of the sexual misconduct at the centre. Oh. And that centre nearly went under. It, it basically more or less collapsed because there was reoccurring scandals around sexual misconduct, mm-hmm. also alcoholism and financial misappropriation. Oh dear. And so basically she and other kind of Sangha members have kind of built it up again. They've really kind of grappled with the questions of what are the interpersonal dimensions? What are the organizational dimensions? You know, what are the structural dimensions? Like what are the like misunderstandings of Buddhist doctrine? You know, what are the religious dimensions? Like what are all these factors that come together to enable this kind of abuse on misconduct to repeatedly occur. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's what a lot of sanghas need to do. And that's more the exception mm-hmm. than the rule, definitely. I mean, some of the other communities we're working with or started to talk to people, I think their responses have been very limited, yeah. you know, limited. They've had a couple of meetings after it's happened. The more that you study it, you just kind of realize like how how deep the scandals are in and of themselves awful and the individual women involved should be believed any victim blaming is completely inappropriate and unacceptable to me as a feminist uh, but there are as you say the dynamics are much deeper than just interpersonal dynamics like there's a whole culture in which the abuse is able to exist so challenges to sexual abuse it's not enough to just get rid of the individual teacher it's not enough just to have a couple of community meetings like you have to really look at so many elements of innate it's basically a culture of enabling right and i think that there has been a shift in american sanghas to like really you know a recent one was a dissolution of against the stream and if you kind of get on the against the stream kind of facebook pages you know the group pages and individual teachers you know a lot of them are asking the questions what are the collective conditions that allowed this to happen mm-hmm. 
know, what was my role in it? What was our group's role in it? Like, what are the what are the wider power dynamics that are involved in this? And as you say, I think a big part of it, and I think especially you can see it really clearly with you know the, in the Zen chapter is there is this incredible like naivete and a kind of Orientalism, uh-huh. you know, this kind of yep. spiritual idealism of magic kind of Asian teacher who is all enlightened and can't put a foot wrong. And if they do something that's like really like out of order or suspicious, it mu- it must be upaya, you know, it's skillful means, you <laughs> know. And it's it's like you know it's so painful. It is, yeah, it is. But I want to say this because I think it's a it's an important point about different discourses coming into tension, mm. right? Because when we talk about bringing history and critical thought into sanghas, you say it and I say it as well. We say things like, it's just common sense. It's just common sense if X, you know, if this teacher did that, obviously it was misconduct or abuse. We say that as kind of people who are not wed to the narrative of Paya or Samaya or But if you're in that narrative, it's a way of looking at the world that, it does make sense of that behavior, right? Do you know what I mean? Like it makes yeah, like yeah. the behavior is it is to a large degree legitimated within a traditional narrative. Absolutely, yeah. So then some people say, oh yeah, it, it's in the traditional narrative, right? But the difference is that, you know, you've also got these checks and balances that are embedded in traditions that didn't come over to the West. That's one major response that's basically like, oh, you know, the sexual abuse scandals are happening because Essentially, it, it, it kind of tries to put the blame more on both the rogue teacher. It says, oh, you have these immature teachers or these lonely teachers. And then you've got these, you know, idealistic, naive Westerners. Right. And I think both of them are true. But I also think it can be a way maybe of letting maybe not. I don't know how to put this, but minimizing maybe some profound differences around ethics and sexual ethics in a kind of tantric context, right? Mm -hmm. And a kind of contemporary kind of progressive context. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I'm really interested in is, can we really wed those two narratives or ways of being in the world? Can we really have a kind of feminist, consensual tantra that is faithful to its pre-modern iterations? You know, (laughs) I'm not saying that we can't, You know, and I think there are some really interesting projects to kind of revision Tantra in a kind of progressive way. I do kind of have this sense that there's not enough people maybe that are really wrestling with maybe these like points of conflict that can't be integrated. Yeah, I'd agree with that final point. And I think that's a big part of the problem. I think that there's not enough active engagement with the tension that emerges when you start to bring different ideological perspectives together which goes back to that point I made before about knowledge, right? There, There is a certain burden that contemporary Western Buddhists have, and I think Asian Buddhists too at this point, because of the globalized world we live in, where you can't, you can't sidestep these issues. And what you described before with that community that's written up this, this pamphlet and has, in a sense, confessed the history of abuse within its tradition, that's the kind of thing that, that should happen or, or can happen if people start to do that. But as you like you said, I mean... It can also bring these communities to the point of destruction. But I also think it brings up a challenge about where where we go with a progressive idealism, which would like to view all cultures as having validity, and then the fact that certain cultural expressions transmit these dysfunctional types of behaviours. And I think that's another point of tension which 
is very difficult to navigate, but it challenges ideological allegiances on all sides of the political, but also the traditional modernist, postmodern, and whatever other ism we want to come up with on the spectrum of different types of practitioners engaging with these experiences, these realities, and these social dynamics today. I find it interesting how communities navigate different strategies of responses to these events as a way also to, to, to let's say, preserve their validity as a tradition. And I think that's perhaps also a postmodern condition too of, of these multiplicities of different identities and roles all coming into contact with each other and producing different types of tensions and challenges. The final point I would make is, is, is really is the one you just made. I really, really want to see more people engaging more critically with all of these different facets. And um, it's fantastic the story you told about these different communities who are doing that effectively. I hope, I hope that sort of behavior will start to leach out and become more of a norm across communities. Because I also think, I also think it's a bit of a cop out, you know, for something like against the stream, just to suddenly close everything down as if that will make the problem go away. It makes me think about the child abuse scandals in the Catholic Church. It's like, well, are we actually going to deal with the structural causes that allow, you know, these priests to sexually abuse children? Or are we just going to, you know, make that, that, that particular priest disappear from one day to the next as if the problem will suddenly go away? And I think it's no surprise that Buddhist communities have in certain instances mirrored the same kind of behavior. And I think that's the point where it's useful to start thinking, well, maybe Buddhism doesn't actually provide us with the tools to approach these kinds of challenges effectively. And as some of these Buddhist communities are doing, it actually requires us to look outside of our our, our, our remit, right? Our areas of professional knowledge and capacity. Yeah, I mean, just as a kind of clarification, I used Against the Stream as an example of, you know, a contemporary community in this kind of flux. I think the situation of them dissolving is really complex because there's a lot of kind of legal issues and kind of organizational issues. Okay. I didn't want to just leave that comment to hang as if that was just the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, the community is splintered, right? So you're seeing lots of different responses in that community. One of the things to arise from the ashes of Against the Stream is uh, San Francisco Dharma Collective. Mm -hmm. If you look that group up online, it's a really interesting group. You know, I talk about those three terms at the end of my book, like the critical, collective and contextual. The mission statement of that group is like, hello, you know, it can't be, it couldn't be a better example. You know, that's just one response because other community members in, in Against the Stream are fully, you know, behind Noah and Noah's doing his own thing and teaching still, but in a different context. So there are lots of different responses. Personally, I'm, I'm very kind of psychoanalytically oriented. Okay. So I find, you know, the incorporation of psychodynamics and also the incorporation of structural kind of theory and organizational knowledge into Buddhist sanghas really healthy after sexual abuse scandals, right? But a lot of people hate that, you know, I mean, a lot of people are like, you're turning Buddhism into psychology, or this isn't real Zen. Someone like, say, like Brad Warner, you know, like any anything that's like vaguely progressive, you can bet <laughs> he'll do a podcast being like, it's feminism's ruining Buddhism. And, you know, oh, Levine's great. And I don't want to pick on Brad, but he's a voice, I think, and representative of a large portion of Buddhists who really don't like I don't even know whether it's like they don't like other discourses being integrated. It's more like they don't like discourses that they don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't that also a question? It, some people are fine with psychodynamics in the sangha, but they don't want to. They don't want to talk about right. rape. Right, right, right. 
some people are fine bringing secularism in, but they don't want to talk about whatever. I don't know. I think it's kind of selective. It is really interesting to me, you know, like one of the one of the questions that we've been kind of wrestling with Amy and I is when sexual abuse or misconduct happens, what narrative do practitioners turn to? Mm-hmm. Like, do they say, OK, you know, the problem was that we didn't practice the precepts? Or do they say, okay, the problem was that there's, you know, we need to bring a therapist to work with us. What discourses do they turn to and how do they understand what the problem is? And I just think there's one of the things that I really like, one concept that I love of Glenn Wallace's is, you know, this principle of sufficient Buddhism, Mm. you know, that all the answers are found in Buddhism. And you do see that, you know, that is a response to the scandals, you know, that you don't need other discourses, that it's either a problem with an individual teacher, but Buddhism as a system is fine or there's no problem at all and the teacher's done nothing wrong and the problem is with misperception of the teacher so yeah yeah, there's a lot of responses to the sex scandals and i think one of the reasons why it's so interesting to look at is because they do illuminate all of these different factions you know that are Mm -hmm. happening yeah contemporary buddhism so yeah sorry i might have gone off no, it's okay. It's okay. These topics are, are fascinating and there's much more that could be said. And I'm glad you picked up on uh, the principle of sufficient Buddhism. And I would agree with Glenn's critique of Buddhist communities from that perspective, which is that as soon as you see sexual abuse taking place, it's no longer a Buddhist issue. Uh, you can respond to it as a Buddhist, but if there's abuse taking place, it's, a, it's an issue for the law and for the wider social context. You know, whether Buddhists like that or not, I think that's just that's just the nature of it. I would agree with you too. It, What's fascinating from a sort of uh, a meta perspective is the kinds of reactive patterns that emerge within these communities and how they validate them. Yeah. I'm going to finish off with the final question, even though there are a couple I really wanted to get into. You've talked a little bit about what's next for you professionally. Would you like to revisit the the projects you're working on briefly and uh, just give us an idea of, uh, of where you're heading to with that? As I mentioned what will be hopefully our next book project is a you know is a project I'm working with friend and colleague Amy Langenberg and Amy is a specialist in Buddhist sexual ethics and contemporary kind of feminisms you know I'm not trained classically in Buddhism I don't read Buddhist languages so she's kind of got the historical sense of how have Buddhists historically dealt with sexual misconduct, sexual abuse or analogous incidences. And then I do, you know, contemporary ethnography. So we're basically joining forces. So we really want to offer a book, you know, that really gets to gives a more kind of nuanced and sophisticated treatment of the Buddhist sex scandals because we think there's so much, they say so much about Buddhism, you know, in the contemporary world. Um, So that's a project. And I'm also, Amy and I are also part of a big team. There's six scholars and we've just applied for a huge grant uh, with the Loose Foundation. And if we're successful, we'll be doing a five-year project on religion and sexual abuse across Buddhism, Hindu yoga. Catholicism. This is an area which is really going to shape a lot of my research, you know, in the next uh, five years. Um, I'm also working on a collection with Scott on Buddhism in America, you know, an editor collection for Oxford. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to kind of uh, work, rework uh, my dissertation, which is a more comparative kind of project. I'm really interested basically in this kind of cultural and kind of turn to this kind of collective conditioning. I'm really seeing it across Buddhist yoga and kind of spiritual but not religious communities. So I'd like to do something with that. And then the last thing, sorry, 
this might be of interest to you. I'm actually gotten really interested in Buddhism and class because class is a category, you know, that isn't really articulated much in diversity and inclusion work. Mm-hmm. But you know, being a Brit from a working class, you know, family and city, class has probably been the kind of social conditioning that has shaped me the most. I don't know if you relate to that as a Brit. I'm not sure. Are you like a posh Brit or a working <laughs> class Brit? <laughs> Shouldn't you be able to figure it out from my accent? Well, you do sound posh, but you're a southerner, so... <laughs> I love it, love it, love it, yeah. The north-south divide for our American colleagues, they might not be familiar with it, yeah. <laughs> I won't say too much just because clock's ticking down, but uh, I'm a bit of an odd case in that my mother came from a thoroughly middle-class family, but she and my father were the black sheep of the family, and I grew up in relative poverty. So I think I occupied two different classes at the same time. One of those was not even working class, but just being poor, and the other was middle class. So I kind of grew up with values from both, which I think gave me, or at least gave, yeah, gave me, probably still gives me an interesting perspective on class dynamics. Yeah, that's probably all I need to say about that. I'll say that you're middle class. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I'm middle class now. Yeah. Are you hippie middle class? Did you grow up like a hippie middle class? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's more complex than that. I'm happy for you to categorize me. No, I'm just teasing you. Sorry. I just a little, little poke at the end. No, it's all right. It's all good. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely middle class now. Although, you know, in Italy, they don't have perspective on class like we do in the UK, which is very, very interesting. All of the markers of class distinctions that you and I are familiar with don't exist here. It's kind of odd. And that was disruptive, I think, as well, talking about like ideological conditioning and, you know, the major social forces that shape experience of selfhood. As a Brit coming to Italy, that really disrupted many of the the ideas I had about selfhood within society. You know, you talked about whiteness before, which is, is certainly an interesting category to explore. But there was actually a, a teacher from Samye Ling. I think he was the Lama Yeshi, not the famous Lama Yeshi, but another one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And one of the things he said... And I think he's absolutely spot on. And he obviously had firsthand experience of this. He said that actually moving to a country where the culture is vastly different from your own is as powerful as a three-year retreat. Wow. It seriously disrupts your entire sense of self. And I would agree with him fully. And I think that if you move to a culture that's different from your own, like you have, that's already huge. But if you move into a culture that also has another language, I think that amplifies the disruption to your sense of self in the world. Yeah, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Yeah, especially with the other language. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree. If, you know, as long as you, you know, really open yourself to that culture, because I think a lot of Brits, as you know, who move abroad, you know, basically create little Britain. Right, yes, you know, they do. Like, yes. I lived in Spain for two years and, you know, there was definitely a little Britain in Spain. No one learned Spanish and, you know, everyone yeah. at like an English breakfast in the pub, you know. <laughs> You know, so, but I think you're right. I think it's an amazing, it is is a possibility of kind of clinking, you know, making a a chink in the selfhood armor, isn't it? Yeah. As you say. Yeah, great. And and we've been chatting for quite some time. Uh, The last thing I would just say, do you have a a personal website where people can locate all of the things we've been talking about today in terms of texts and your academic work? No, I don't. I actually don't. I, I haven't got around to it. I'm just, just too busy to get onto that. Um, yeah, hopefully, I just want to encourage people to buy my book. I'd really like it to, to do well for Yale, especially, and also for myself, obviously. Um, but yeah, no, and if, if anyone's got like a, a question, and they, they can definitely find me online and send me an email. I'm always online, so I try and respond to people. But yeah, no, thanks, Matthew. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about my book. You're welcome. Mr. 
does it take to change a light bulb? None. The butler changes the light bulb. Always poor, never born. The SLC one, Timmy Student Loan back. He'd happily oblige, but he's used it all on GAC. Always poor, never born. Miscarriage, two abortions, one degree, seven jobs, Sally dance the soft, soft as Jesus, soft, always poor, never poor. Never bored. Ah!